Jesus, we, we thank you for this passage and what you reveal to the disciples, what you reveal to us. God, I pray that that not only would we know you better through this uh, service, but that we would understand um, what you expect from us, what you want from us. Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us um, what to do in light of, of who you are. Pray that your spirit would, would move in power, that you'd touch our hearts, that you would transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so if you remember last week, if you were here, we talked about this important question, uh, possibly, actually, the most important question any person could ever ask, and each person must come to this place where they ask themselves this question, that is, who is Jesus? And Jesus, he asks the disciples that very thing. First, he says, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am. And Peter, he had this profound revelation and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, he confirms that flesh and blood didn't reveal that to him, but his father who is in heaven. This was a spiritually, a spiritually understood thing. Now, Jesus, after he hammers home this point that he is not only the Son of God, but He's God in the flesh. He truly is the Lord. He always has been the Lord. Now, He's going to communicate to us what He's going to do. I am Lord, and this is my purpose on earth. And then He's going to communicate to us, because what He does, this is what He expects us to do. See, Jesus, not only is he God, not only is he the son of God, not only is he fully God and fully man, but he also refers to himself as the way. He says that in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning he shows us the way and how we ought to live as believers. And that's exactly what he's going to do in this text. He's going to show us what he does to reveal to us the way that we should walk. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, The Way of Jesus. The Way of Jesus. I would like to to read uh, this text in Matthew chapter 16. We'll be in verses 21 to 28. Uh, We'll read the text because it's short and then we'll break it down. If you would with me. Um, just look at Matthew chapter 16, picking it up in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What Jesus is doing here after he communicates this important truth that he is God, he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, then he tells us what he's going to do. And that's where I want to focus for a minute. If you look back at verse 21, that's exactly what he communicates here. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Once he reveals who he is, he reveals what he's going to do and what he's going to do is fulfill the gospel. He's communicating the gospel to them. He's telling them exactly how he is fulfilling the gospel, what he's going to do, which brings me to the first of five points. His way is the gospel. His way is the gospel. Now remember, he got this important truth across that, that he is God. And that's important for us to believe. But it's not enough for us just to believe that he is God. He needs us to believe the gospel. It's not enough for his disciples just to believe that he's Lord. They need to believe the gospel because it's the gospel that saves us. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's God, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The gospel is clearly uh, clearly communicated, obviously, in the four gospels that we have, but it's summed up in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. In those first few verses, he says, this is the gospel that was delivered to me that we see in the scriptures that Jesus, yes, he was Lord, but he died, he was buried, and he rose again. See, Jesus needs the disciples not just to believe that he is Lord, but they need to believe the gospel. The Lord wants us not just to believe in his lordship, but believe in the gospel, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. That's what saves us. So let's talk about those things. He says not only will he suffer, but he'll be killed. His death. Atheists and agnostics, historians, when they look at Jesus' life and they study history, they say the most certain thing that we can find, the most certain truth that is revealed through history about the life of Jesus Christ is that he died on a cross. Atheists say that. Agnostics say that. You know what Muslims say? Muslims say that Jesus didn't die on the cross and they have all these different beliefs about what happened to Jesus. There's replacement theory where it was really Simon the Serene or it appeared like Jesus, but it was really Judas. But Muslims believe that Jesus did not, in fact, die on the cross. But when you look at history, 
there's not a shred of evidence that would support that Jesus didn't die on the cross. When you look at what atheist and agnostic historians claim, it's the one thing that they say they can be certain of is the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says. He will be killed, but he'll be killed only to what? Be raised again. Now, this is so important. This is the most pivotal uh, understanding next to the lordship of Christ is the resurrection of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there was no resurrection, then we're just fools. We're just following some fake religion that really means nothing. If there was no resurrection, Jesus wants us. He needs us to believe in the resurrection. And when you think about the resurrection, I remember before I was a Christian and I heard Jesus resurrected. It's like, yeah, right. Logically, that doesn't really make sense to me because I've never witnessed anyone resurrect from the dead. But when you look historically at the evidence in what happened, the resurrection is the best logical explanation of the facts. There's a, a, a method out there and it's called the, the minimal facts approach. Okay. We could talk about the resurrection for, for years, but when you look at just the basic, we're going to talk about three points, why the resurrection is the best logical argument of what happened to Jesus. First of all, uh, that he died by crucifixion. That That's the first thing. Okay, He doesn't raise from the dead until he died. And some would say, well, the disciples saw Jesus because he didn't really die. He was just still around. He appeared like he died, but but he really didn't die. He was still wandering around and doing ministry for all those days and all these different things. And some say that he went to different continents and all this other stuff that's not supported biblically. But when we look at history, as I already uh, showed to you, revealed to you, is that we can rest assured that the crucifixion actually happened. So he died. He was dead. Died by crucifixion. Next, the people who believed in him believed in the resurrection. Meaning the people that followed him, the disciples who watched him, who did life with him, they believed in the resurrection. They said that they saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. They they saw him in his resurrected form. Now, this is important because this isn't just something that they believe. They're not just saying we believe in the resurrection. They're claiming to witness the resurrection. Why is that important? Many people will die for things they believe in. When you look at jihad in the uh, in the Muslim faith and Islam, that's the only way to secure your salvation is dying in a holy war. That's the only way you can secure your salvation. Okay? So they believe that if they die in a holy war, that they will... Um, engage with Allah and experience everlasting life with Allah. Okay. But they're basing that on something they believe the disciples. They're not basing the resurrection on something they believe and they died. We have to remember history tells us that 10 of the 11 other than John plus a few more were martyred for what? Not for following Jesus, by claiming that he was God and that he rose from the dead. They weren't just saying, I believe that the resurrection happened. They're saying, I witnessed the resurrection happen. So they're not dying just for a belief. They're dying for something that they saw. Now think about it. 
if you were one of those disciples and you were put up against Nero or one of the other leaders that was persecuting Christians at the time, and he said, all I want you to do is recant the lordship of Christ and say that he wasn't resurrected. Now, they were brought to that point. These disciples were. If it was uh, uh, something they made up, if this thing wasn't true, then they would have simply said, no, no, no. All right, the gig's up. I'm sorry. It's not true. We just love Jesus and we wanted to start this movement. No, no, no. People don't die for a lie. They would have known the truth. And if they knew the truth and it wasn't the truth that he rose from the dead, they wouldn't have allowed themselves to be martyred, to be persecuted for the Lord. But this was something not just that they believed. This is something that they're claiming that they witnessed. So we see that the people that followed Jesus believe that he actually rose from the dead. An even better argument is number three. People who didn't believe in Jesus, people who didn't follow him, people who didn't believe in him, believed that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. They saw him in his resurrected form. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that there's over 500 people that saw the Lord in his resurrected form. And as Paul goes on to argue the case for the resurrection, he mentions two people that I believe are absolutely pivotal for understanding the reality of the resurrection. He mentions James. Who is James? James was the Lord's brother. James, it says in John chapter 7, he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. In other scriptures as well, it mentions his lack of belief. He went from unbelief to full-fledged belief. He became the pastor, in other words, of the church of Jerusalem, and he was ended up, ended up getting thrown off a temple. And when he survived, he was beaten to death with a club. It's like, He went from unbelief to full-fledged belief. Why? Because he saw something that he didn't expect. He saw a miracle. He saw the Lord risen from the dead. How does someone go from complete unbelief to full-fledged belief? Something significant happens. Same thing goes for Paul, right? He was on another level persecuting Christians, right? He did not believe that Jesus was Lord. He thought this was blasphemy. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He was so against all these things, thinking he was doing these things for Yahweh. He recognizes on the road to Damascus, he's doing these things against Yahweh. And Jesus, it says that he met him. There And he came as a a light and he revealed himself to Paul. And Paul goes in a moment from persecuting Christians to being sold out for Jesus. You can't chalk that up as just a change of heart. It's not like you change your mind that radically in an instant. And he says the reason for the change in motivation, the change in lifestyle, the change in belief was because I saw the risen Lord. Now, these are just some of the arguments. There's so many out there, but when you look at the facts and what history tells us, literally the resurrection is the best logical argument for what we know that happened in history. And then Paul, he too gets martyred for his faith. He's beheaded by Caesar. So again, it wasn't just something that he said he believed. He said that he witnessed this thing and who would die for a lie. I don't know anyone that would die for a lie. And these disciples, they didn't die for a lie. They died because they witnessed something that they knew was true. 
And that's why he's communicating this. Not only believe in my lordship, but believe in the gospel. Believe in my death. Believe in the resurrection. It's great that the disciples believe that he's God. We already saw that in the last teaching. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to believe in his lordship. We have to believe in his lordship. We have to believe in the entirety of the gospel. Again, that he is God, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. If we're not believing one of those things, then we're not believing the gospel. And I know some Christians, because they haven't studied the resurrection, they'll question, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know about the resurrection. I don't know about the virgin birth. I don't know about all these things, but not believing those things is not believing the gospel. And God, he wants us to believe the gospel. And the more we study it, the more we look into it, it doesn't take much faith to believe. It's literally the best logical explanation of history and the facts that are revealed through history. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, after he communicates the gospel, what he's going to (laughs) do, look at Peter. Oh, Peter. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Peter's rebuking the Lord. Okay, remember what happened uh, in, in the text before Jesus had this, or sorry, Peter had this profound revelation from God, and now he thinks he's in a place where he can rebuke the Lord. And what he's rebuking the Lord on, he's rebuking him. He's trying to prevent him from doing the very thing that's going to bring Peter salvation. He's trying to prevent him from fulfilling the gospel. Peter, if you only knew what these things meant, then you would not be speaking these words. You would not be rebuking the Lord. You would not be trying to prevent him from doing what he came to this earth to do. But I want to identify with Peter for a moment. The first time we ever heard the gospel, um, some of you might have got saved the first time, but some of you might have had questions. And you're like, I don't really get this. This doesn't make sense for me that, that God had to come and die for my sins. What does that even mean? That he rose from the... What do those things mean? And these things, the gospel in and of itself, it was a stumbling block even for the people of that day. And Paul, he addresses this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in one of the sections he addresses this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The fact that God had to come and die, had to come and be crucified. It was a stumbling block to the Jew. Why? Because they were focused on the Lord's second coming. They thought Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come and rule and reign then. That he was going to take over Rome. That they were going to have the kingdom even better than when David was king. That's what they were expecting. But they weren't looking at the scriptures that were pointing to his first coming. So this was a stumbling block that the Messiah would die. They thought he was going to fulfill this in a different way. It was foolishness to the Greeks. They're focused on wisdom. Man's wisdom doesn't say, yeah, God dying makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical when we're leaning on our own understanding, when we're leaning on our own wisdom. But there's a lot of things that God tells us, that God communicates to us that doesn't doesn't make sense right off the bat. 
He asks us to have spiritual insight. He asks us to have uh, spiritual wisdom, wisdom from above. He tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, to lean not on our own understanding. Not that we're not supposed to think. God wants us to be thinkers. That's an avenue by which he tells us to love him. Love him with all your mind. He wants us to think. But we can't lean so much on our own logic that we discredit the logic and wisdom of God. His wisdom, his wisdom was the cross. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, this is Peter leaning on his wisdom. Now, Jesus is going to rebuke him. He has a rebuke for him in verse 23. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, um, I don't believe that Satan possessed Peter in this moment. Okay, I think what Peter's saying is of the spirit of Satan because he's trying to prevent the gospel from happening, from being fulfilled. And that's what the enemy was out to do, to prevent the gospel from being fulfilled. The enemy who knew the gospel from the beginning, even in Genesis chapter three, with the curse, the seed of the woman was going to crush your head. Okay, and you're going to bite his heel. We, we, we see that in scripture, the enemy, he, he, he knows the scriptures. He knows what's going to happen, but he tries to prevent the scriptures from being fulfilled. So he's using the carnal mentality of Peter to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Now, some, some believe that Satan is like behind Peter and whispering in his ear. Say this. We don't know that for sure. All we know is that Peter and what he communicates is of the heart of Satan. But I want to backtrack and consider this a little, a little deeper, a little, a little fuller. What just happened last passage? It was Peter, right? Who had this profound revelation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven, Peter, great job. You communicated a deep spiritual truth. You ever have those moments where you do something super spiritual? Like God revealed something really deep to you? Or maybe you just got done praying or fasting or serving or whatever. And then the next moment, you're doing something of the enemy. You're doing something that that he would have you do. You're, You're committing sin. You're communicating something to a brother or sister that you know is not from the Lord. This is so encouraging, really. We can have these super spiritual moments and then fall into sin so easily. That's what happened to to Peter. It's not encouraging uh, in, in the idea that we should do this. It's encouraging to recognize that when we have these spiritual moments, that's when we have to be even more on guard than ever before. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says this, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's in that moment that we think we've arrived. It's in that moment that we think we're standing on our own two feet. It's that moment that the Lord commends us because we're so spiritual. Because we have this great revelation. The Bible says, be careful. Be careful with that mentality. Your flesh is weak and the moment that you think you're standing is the moment right before 
you're falling. And that's what Peter does, the great revelation. And then he's literally doing something under the influence of Satan. Jesus, again, he says, get behind me, Satan. So it's not Peter, just in his own logic and reasoning. uh, Satan is, is at work here. Satan is influencing whatever he's saying, however he's saying it. So the enemy is at work. The enemy tried to do everything that he could to prevent the gospel from being fulfilled. That was in the past. Now you know what he does? He tries to prevent people from believing that the gospel already was fulfilled. He tries to put those blinders over people's eyes and whether it's the death of the Lord. He blinds the Muslim from believing the death of the Lord, from believing in his deity. He blinds the Jehovah's Witness from believing in the deity of Christ. They don't believe that Christ is deity. They believe he's uh, Michael, the archangel reincarnate. And then we see so many people that don't believe in the resurrection, whether it's an atheist or agnostic, because it doesn't make sense to him if he can prevent you from believing that one of these things hasn't been fulfilled, he can rob you of your soul. And that's his heart. That's what he's trying to do. And he does it in so many tricky ways. When you look at Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, if you believe any other gospel other than the gospel we preach to you, let that man be accursed. Even if an angel preaches to you a different gospel, let that man be accursed. How many religions have been birthed because of the communication of an angel? Paul also tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Islam was birthed from what? The communication from Gabriel, the archangel, to Muhammad. We look at Mormonism and Moroni communicating this different message, this different gospel than the one that we have. And I reiterate these things and I communicate these things. I have a love for Muslims. I have a love for Mormons. It's not about that. It's about recognizing the enemy at work and trying to prevent people from believing that the gospel has been fulfilled. He's crafty. He's very good at convincing. And just as he was trying to prevent the gospel from being fulfilled right here in this text, he will try to prevent the unbeliever from believing that the gospel has been fulfilled already. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look what Jesus does communicates his identity in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Then he communicates what he's going to do in verse 21. Then in verse 24, he says, because this is who I am, because this is what I'm going to do, this is what I expect you to do. I expect you to follow me. I expect you to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. And the things that Jesus communicates here and what it means to follow him is difficult. Which brings me to the second point. His way is difficult. His way is difficult. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We're to imitate God. We're to follow him. We're to mimic him. We're to be like him. 
And what did Jesus do? What was his way? What is he calling us to imitate him in? He gave us an outline in verse 21. Let me reread it to you. This is what Jesus said he was going to do. And this is the way he tells us to follow him. From that point, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Not that we all have to go to Jerusalem. It'd be great, but we don't have to. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and raised the third day. Jesus says, imitate me in this. Walk in the way that I walked. If you're following Jesus, then there's a promise in Scripture that you will suffer. You will face trials. You will face tribulations. Maybe not all the time, but there's a promise that it's going to happen eventually. And Peter puts it like this talking to these different Christians, these pilgrims who were scattered around, these believers, he says to them, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Listen to what Peter says. You think the suffering that's happening to you is strange? Like, don't think it's strange concerning these fiery trials. Don't think it's strange that you're having a difficult time as a Christian. Remember, Jesus promised this. It's in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says this exactly. In the world, you will have tribulations. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the the world. Suffering tribulations, it's a promise from the Lord. And that's the outline that he gives us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Yes, he's going to suffer many things, but he's also going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected by his own. He's going to be rejected by uh, the people in Nazareth, by the people uh, in Israel, by in Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, all these different people are going to reject the Lord. And you know what he says in John chapter 15? If you flip with me there. John chapter 15. Verse 18, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Hey, don't be surprised when you get rejected. Don't be surprised when someone hates you because what you believe. Don't be surprised that by following Jesus, you might miss out on some other relationships. That you might lose friends, you might lose family members, you might lose community. Maybe it's a community that you're not supposed to be a part of anyways. The point is, when we face rejection, when we face the heartache, rejection hurts. It hurts when people tell you they don't want you. Anyone ever been rejected? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah, it hurts bad. Jesus says, I was rejected. You're going to be rejected too. If it hasn't happened yet, it probably will happen. And then he says, not only will he suffer, not only will we be rejected, but we'll also die. Just as Jesus was killed, we too will die. The truth about Scripture is that every man will die. It's appointed for every man to die once. But there's also a promise attached to that. Jesus talks about death so often because it's so important in gaining this understanding. He puts it this way in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. 
verse 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The only way that we're going to produce anything in our lives that's worthwhile is if we die. And I'm not just talking about physical death. We all know that we're going to physically die. I'm talking about death to self. And that's what he's going to focus on in the next verse. But before I get into that, there's another promise that he gives us in Matthew chapter 16 in this outline. Not only will we suffer, not only will we will be rejected, not only will we be killed, but we'll also what? Be raised just as Christ was raised the third day. So will we be raised when we die to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And uh, Paul communicates it this way. I love this in Romans chapter eight, verse 18, Romans eight, verse 18. He says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We think what we might be walking through in certain seasons of our life are so bad, but Paul's saying you don't even know what awaits. When you look back at this, it's going to be like nothing. The glory that's going to be revealed far outweighs the suffering that you're experiencing now. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow him in the way that he walked, identifying with his crucifixion. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, in other words, we won't identify with his resurrection until we identify with his crucifixion. Maybe you're going through a hard time right now. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe it just seems like, Everything's going the wrong way. All these different bad things are happening and you're, and you're suffering. You're going through it. We can't allow the suffering in this life to discourage us. Scripture tells us to allow suffering to encourage us. Why? Because Jesus said that we will suffer. We will face tribulation. So when we're walking through tribulation, as difficult as it may be, when we see that that truth is fulfilled, that that promise is fulfilled by the Lord, then the other promises will be fulfilled as well. You might be suffering now, but there's glory that awaits. You might be going through it right now, but heaven, when you get there, you're not even going to consider this suffering. It's going to be so small in comparison. Suffering should actually lead us to a place that 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 we are even more encouraged, that we're even more trusting of God's word because he said it's going to happen. Maybe it's not happening now, but you can rest assured it will happen eventually. Again, verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does this mean exactly? Um, there's a lot of depth here, but we're just going to briefly go through it. See, the disciples knew what it meant to die on a cross. They knew what that meant. That was a, a Roman form of torture and execution. It was a, the worst of the worst, dying on a cross. But the thing about dying on a cross was once you got convicted of that punishment, you were the one that had to carry your 100 to 200 pound cross up the hill. So he's literally calling us to be obedient to the point of death. Think about this. Put yourself back there, uh, Roman history, and they say, well, you did this. Um, you're going to be crucified. Pick up your cross and walk up the hill. Dude, if they told me that, I'd be like, dude, you pick up the cross. 
I'm not, I'm not going to pick up that cross. You're going to kill me. It's bad enough that I have to be crucified, but you want me to pick up the cross? I'm literally picking up the very thing that I'm going to be killed on. Like, that's crazy. But they were uh, pretty, pretty persuasive, and they forced people to do it with whips and communication and all these different forms. Jesus is saying, just as I walked to the cross, carried my cross up Calvary's hill and died, that's the type of obedience that I'm calling you to. Let me show you in Philippians chapter 2. This was his mind. The mind of Christ, he had made up his mind that he was going to be obedient to everything God the Father told him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then skip to verse 8. This is part of the mind of Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. That's what it means to pick up your cross daily and follow him. It it, it means I'm going to be obedient no matter what it costs me, no matter how bad it hurts. Yes, there's going to be blessings. There's also going to be brutality, but the direction the Lord is giving us, no, 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 deny yourself, pick up your cross. This, This might be painful at certain times. It will be painful, but you need to follow me and be obedient to the point of death. That's the message that he was giving the disciples right here after he reveals his divinity and what he's going to do. Look at verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a tough one too. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's this call? He's calling us to be self-sacrificial. He's calling us uh, to a death to self. This is the way of Jesus. It's sacrifice, which brings me to the third point. His way is sacrificial. Lose your life. Deny yourself. His way is sacrificial. He calls us to lose our lives. <clears throat> That's hard for us, right? We want to hold on to our lives, right? We want to have some type of control over what happens in our lives. We, we come on, let me have some type of say of what happens when we do have a say. But what Jesus is saying is, give it all to me. Lose your life to me. Completely surrender to me. Only when you completely surrender, only when you sacrifice your life will you find life. This is a promise. Lose your life and you'll find it. But we, we try to, we try to hold on to this thing. We try to hold on to our lives. We try to hold on to the very thing that he asks us to give him. Need I remind you that when you accepted Jesus in your life, if you're one of those people, if you're a believer, you already gave him your life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. When we give our lives to the Lord, We're accepting the redemption. We're accepting the price that he paid through the cross to to ransom us. Yet we still want to hold on. And there's bits of pieces in our lives. I'll give you this, but I won't give you that. And he's like, no, no, no. 
If you want to experience the life that I have for you, you got to lose it all. He's calling us to reckless abandonment, and that's difficult, but it's his way. If we want to experience life, we have to lose our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Giving our lives to God as a living sacrifice. He's not talking about suicide here. He's talking about spiritually giving your lives to God. Giving our lives to God as a sacrifice is our reasonable service. God's not asking us too much by asking us to give him our lives. It's the very thing that we need to give him if we want to experience the abundant life that he wants for us. But we get stuck in this mentality that, hey, I need to preserve myself. If if I don't care for myself, who's going to care for me? And God says, stop caring for yourself. Cast your cares upon me and I'll care for you. You don't have to worry about yourself. I'll worry about you. He takes that place. He becomes our life. He lives through us. But we have this problem. We have this problem with selfishness. See, part of it is our nature, but also part of it is our culture. We get so focused on striving towards the American dream. I want the big house and the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and all these different things. This is, this is what it means to be an American. If I attain all these different things, then I've made it in America. And what happens when you attain those things? Something's missing. It's like, because that's not the purpose of your life. But it's instilled in us, even as youth in America, this ideology, this dog-eat-dog world, do whatever you have to do to make it to the top. You, you, you gotta take care of yourself. You're in it to win it. And if you don't, you're gonna be last. You're gonna be least. You're gonna be all these different things. It's self-preservation. It's selfishness. And it's completely contrary to the way of the Lord. He says, deny self. He was self-sacrificial. He didn't care about material possessions. Now, as I said, part of this is natural. Part of it is cultural. Naturally, everyone suffers with or struggles with selfishness. But I'll tell you, in certain cultures, uh, for example, Liberia, at least the, the encounters that I've had, the people are so selfless. Literally, they will sleep on the mud floor and make you sleep in their bed, wife and husband. There's no option. They're giving you every single thing that they have. It's all about the group. It's not about the individual. It's all about the group. Because why? You know why? If they don't focus on the group, if they don't try to help each other, then they die. So they work with each other with food. Literally, if you pull out food, I don't know where they come from. Neighbors are coming left to right and they eat out of the same bowl. Everybody's in it for each other. They're not so selfish, but we've had this ideology instilled in us that the only way we're going to make it is if we preserve self, if we practice selfishness. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that mentality is demonic. Let me show you in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3. James, he speaks about these different forms of wisdom. And he says this in James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have... 
bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. This, this wisdom does not ascend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Self-seeking, it's not from God. That's what James is saying. Selfishness, that's not from the Lord. That's not the way of the Lord. That's from the enemy. That's from your flesh. That's from your carnal nature. As I said, it's not just a cultural thing. It's a natural thing. Our flesh is naturally selfish. You don't have to have to teach a kid um, the meaning of mine. Okay, You might have to teach them the word, but they learn this is mine. You have to teach them to share. Right? You don't have to teach them to say, this is mine. These things are mine. I have a friend. Uh, he always has two things. Not my friend. His son. <laughs> my friend walks around with two toys everywhere. No, my friend's son, he always has to have two toys in his hand. If you take one of those toys, he loses it. He flips. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. It's like, no. That, that's somebody. You need to share these things. It's not about all these things that you can get your hand on. We were predisposed to selfishness selfishness that's not something we don't we have to learn we have to learn selflessness see selfishness is natural but selflessness is supernatural it takes supernatural power it takes the power of the holy spirit to walk the way that he walked to live this sacrificial self-denial type lifestyle again verse 25 he says whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. We look at losing our lives. He's not referring to suicide or martyrdom every time. It doesn't mean that the only way for us to experience true life is if we are martyred for our faith. See, his point is the little things. We're not going to deny ourselves in the big things if we don't deny ourselves in the little things. It takes denying ourselves with the little things to learn how to deny ourselves in the bigger things. And he gives us so many avenues of self-denial. It's spiritual disciplines. It's waking up early and praying. It's waking up and getting the word. In the beginning, I don't know anybody that like wants to do that. It takes some time to establish that discipline and realizing the fruit that's produced from it. But all of those are forms of self-denial. Fasting, self-denial. Who like loves, like always looks forward to fasting. No one, right? It's like, yes, you look forward to the fruit that comes through fasting, but the actual physical act of fasting is difficult. It's a form of self-denial. I don't get excited about fasting. I do get excited about God working through the fasting. These are all avenues for us to deny self, deny the natural, so that we can operate in the supernatural. See, there was a time where... um where I had to run um, uh, quite a long distance, and I had been fasting. Okay, I was asked to do this. Um, I, I, I was running 11 miles, okay? And I, I, I said in my heart, I'm going to do this even though I'm fasting. Uh, I'm just going to make it happen. This is like day two. This isn't a boast in myself or lose my reward. This is to boast in the power of God and what he's able to do. So about the third, fourth, fifth mile, I'm dying. I literally think I'm going to keel over and die and no one's going to see me and I'm just going to be dead on the side of the road. Uh, about the sixth, seventh mile, 
Literally, the Lord began to empower me. He began to give me strength. He began to speak to me. All these things were happening because I chose to deny self and operate in the supernatural. And you know what happened after I finished that 11th mile? I felt like I could run 11 more. I'm dead serious. There's no logical explanation for that. That I'm feel like I'm dying and then all of a sudden from death comes life. That's what he's saying. Lose your life and you'll find it. If you want to experience spiritual growth, if you want to experience the supernatural, deny the natural, deny the self, and then you'll grow. Then you'll see the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll go so far in leaning on our own power, leaning on our own strength, preserving our life and, and leaning on, 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 on the physical, on the natural. And God says, no, no, no. If you want to experience true life, you've got to deny the natural and lean on the supernatural. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. <clears throat> For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Likely the disciples, after they hear Jesus saying, what lose our lives, uh, I, I want a comfortable life. I, I want a nice life here on earth. And Jesus says, no, no, no. What profit is it to a man if he spends so much time, so much effort, so many resources in making this life comfortable if he loses his soul? Now, specifically, he's speaking of salvation, but this also applies to us practically for, for believers, for those who know the Lord. We can get caught up in this where we're putting so much time and effort. How many hours a week do you work? 40 to 60, 70, some of you. And we'll put so much time and effort into making our lives here comfortable. It's like, what's the point? Why are you? I'm not saying quit your jobs. Don't, don't, don't take this out of context. What's the point in spending so much of this time on your earthly possessions and making sure you're comfortable here on earth? No, no, no. You need to focus on your heavenly possessions. You need to focus on your heavenly inheritance. That's his point. He's trying to teach us what it means to have a heavenly perspective. Point number four. His way is an eternal perspective. His way is an eternal perspective. Jesus is has always been more concerned with the world to come than this present world. And he proves this right in the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. See, Satan is tempting Jesus with all these different things. But I want to focus on one section of this. Luke chapter 4, picking it up in verse 5, it says this. Second temptation. Then the devil taking him up on high, on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. He's tempting Jesus with materialism. I'll give you anything and everything. I'll give you all this authority, all these possessions, all these kingdoms if you would just bow down, if you would just submit to me. And what does Jesus say? And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The Lord, his focus, his perspective was always an eternal perspective. He came as a poor man. He didn't have a lot of possessions. He was a carpenter. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't even have a bed. 
Yet he became poor so that we could become rich in him. But he also calls us to follow his way, to walk in that way. Not that you can't have any possessions. That's that's not what the Lord communicates in the word. But what he is communicating is focus more on your heavenly possessions than your earthly possessions. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, he says just that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. All that stuff is going to be gone. Moth and rust are going to destroy it. And if not that, when he comes back, it's all going to be burned up with fire. That's what well, that's what the Bible says. It's going to be like evaporate. But we spend so much time investing in earthly possessions. He says, no, 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 wrong perspective. What benefit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, if he has everything but he loses his soul? What's the point for the believer if they spend so much time making their lives comfortable that they miss out on the whole point of life? See, Jesus wants us to experience an abundance of life. But when we get so tied down to material things, material things in and of themselves, they're not bad. It's our heart towards them. It's when we get so focused on them that they become an idol, that they become a God, that we're worshiping the creation or the material thing and not that, and not the creator. And we fall into this mindset and this perspective and ultimately we miss out on what life was all about investing into our eternal inheritance. And that's what he focuses on on this next verse. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. After he talks about this eternal perspective, then he tells us, hey, there's going to be a reward for these things. Now think about the things Jesus talked about. Hey, we're going to suffer. We're going to be rejected. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. We hear all these like kind of negatives, right? Lose your life. It's like, man, the Christian life, that doesn't sound very appealing, very exciting. But he says, hey, hey, don't get it twisted. There's going to be a reward for all these things. The way we live here is going to benefit us up there. We will be benefited. We will be rewarded for how we live here on earth. Fifth point, his way is rewarded. His way is rewarded. There's a reward for having this eternal perspective. There's rewards for investing in your heavenly inheritance. And the Bible talks about this in so many different passages, but I just want to pick out one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this in verse 13. He says, Each one's work will become clear. Speaking of the work of the believer, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, the things that we do here on earth and the motivation of our hearts 
behind the things that we do here will either bring us a reward or bring us nothing. If we have a pure heart, sincere uh, motivation because of the love of God, and that's why we do these things here on earth, there's going to be a reward in heaven. If we're just doing these things to, to please men or, uh, or to cr- climb the spiritual ladder and try to get to this position or whatever it is, those aren't the rewards that earn us something. But the point is that there are rewards in heaven based on what we do here on earth. And they're often communicated in forms of crowns. There's so many different passages about crowns. There's a crown of righteousness. There's a crown of of glory uh, for those who serve. There's literally a crown for serving the Lord. There's a crown for evangelism, bringing people to faith. There's so many different crowns for all these different things. And we see in heaven, we'll gain these crowns. But in Revelation, we see that we throw the crowns back at Jesus' feet. Why? Because we wouldn't be able to earn those crowns how it, had it not been for his love, had it not been for his grace. But we still, regardless of the analogy and what actually happens with the crowns, there's a reward in heaven for what we do on earth. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples. That's what he's communicating to us. You will be rewarded based on how you live the Christian life here on earth. In closing, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, there's a lot of debate about this verse specifically. Some will say, see, Jesus told the disciples that they would see him in his second coming. That means the second coming already happened, which means we're in the millennial reign, which was supposed to be a thousand years, but Jesus didn't really mean a thousand years. It was a spiritual reign, and he was spiritualizing the thousand years because it's been over 2,000 years. So many will have to make these arguments that contradict Scripture to say that the second coming already happened. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about, the kingdom that will be revealed, his glory that will be revealed, will be revealed in the next chapter. He's telling the disciples, some of them, exactly three of them, Peter, James, and John, in Matthew 17, are going to see Jesus in his transfigured form. They're going to see his glory. They're going to understand his kingdom in that moment. And that's what he's referring to. But practically, there's also an important and encouraging truth here. Christianity isn't all about suffering. It's not all about self-denial. It's not all about death to self. It's also about unspeakable glory. Unspeakable glory. This is the promise that we see in Scripture. I I read to you Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Again, he says, the suffering that we experience, in other words, in this present life is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, John says this. If you flip with me there, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know 
that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see what he says there? John's like astounded. Oh my gosh. Do you understand how much love God has for us? So much love does he have for us that not only he died for us, but we get to partake in his glory. When we see him, when we meet him in the air, we will be like him, meaning we will be glorified, will be transformed into his image. The glory that awaits us, it's unspeakable. So many different uh, prophets and apostles try to explain this glory. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about this man. He's speaking of himself. And he says, there was this guy. He was caught up to the third heaven, to, to paradise. And he's like battling. I don't know if it's even lawful for me to speak about these things. For me to give human words to what I saw in heaven, it's probably unlawful. Meaning human words can't even describe the glory that awaits us. And when we look at our lives and how small they are, how short they are, if you live to a hundred years, that's nothing compared to eternity. We might have hard times. It might be difficult. The Lord said there's going to be difficult times. But he also said there's going to be a glory that awaits. When we reach heaven and we look back at the hard time that we had or the job that we lost or the family member that we lost, when we look back, we're going to be like, dude, this is it. This doesn't even compare. This doesn't even compare to the glory that I'm experiencing now. It will be so great. It's almost as if it didn't, it didn't happen. This is the glory that the Lord promises us. But this glory, it's not just for then, it's for, it's for now. See, the Lord, He said in John chapter 10 verse 10, I came to give you life and life abundantly. If we want to experience the life, the life abundant that Christ wants for us, then we gotta give into the way that he gave us. We need to follow the way that he walked. We need to die to self. We need to be self-sacrificial. We need to be believing in the gospel. We need to have this eternal perspective because he promises we will be rewarded. We're the ones that lose out if we don't walk in his way. He wants to give us life. He wants to give us abundant life. And he promises it. That good will come even if it's difficult now. But if we don't walk in His way, then we're going to miss out on the life that He wants for us, the life that He promises to us. He's revealed the way. We just have to choose to walk in it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for this text. Um, Profound truths that You revealed to the disciples and Thank God that that you have it on paper for us to to read, for us to meditate on. God, we want to we want to walk in your way, Lord. We know it's a, a supernatural thing, and it takes denying self. But I pray that you would give us the power, you would give us the the strength to deny self, so that we could experience the life that you want for us. As you said, it's a it's our reasonable act of service to give our lives to you. God, so I pray if if there's anyone in here now or anyone that can hear my voice that hasn't made that decision yet, that hasn't uh, didn't choose yet to, to give their lives to you, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're still contemplating, maybe they're still 
thinking about whether this gospel thing is for them. Lord, we know it's not about persuasive words. It's about you moving in power. So God, I pray that you would stir hearts. You would call people unto yourself and you would give them the power to surrender, recognizing that life only comes through death. And you have such a better life for us than the one that we had before we chose you. So God, bless each and every person in this room. Bless our day. In Jesus' name, amen.